Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. For Vago Maradian, I'm Chris Cervello. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analysis. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on Russian military and unmanned systems. Today's show is brought to you by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the Department of Defense. HII, delivering the advantage. Sam, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, hope you had a good weekend. Thanks. Uh, same to you, and uh, glad to be back. Let's look at the week in this conflict, both at the the macro and uh, you know drill into some of the micro issues. At the macro level, um, that it's still very much a, a stalemate uh, from a you know a larger geopolitical issues uh, standpoint. But at the micro level, there were a lot of uh, significant events that that occurred throughout the week. Um, why don't you kind of clue us into maybe the the three or four issues that you're tracking and what you saw as the big news of the week? Well, uh, Ukrainians are continuing their uh, advance around Verbove, where they reached Russian contact line, the Surovikin defense lines. They've breached some of those fortifications and they continue their very slow advance through them. Uh, and, and of course, this kind of um, leads to the question whether or not this is an actual breakthrough everybody was waiting for. And I think everybody's sort of exercising caution and trying to analyze this simply because Russian defenses in the South are so um, so prevalent and well organized. And so uh, at the same time, at the same time, Ukrainian forces have been able to uh, breach through them. And so now there's a very slow and grinding advance uh, through these fortifications. Uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet in Crimea was struck by Ukrainian missile. Uh, which uh, hit not just the building itself, but a lot of people inside, um, killing and wounding a lot of uh, senior Russian officers and flag officers. And of course, uh, each time when uh, Ukrainian strike is successful, Russia responds in kind, and it attacked Ukrainian cities and ports, especially Odessa, with uh, long-range drones like Shahed with missiles uh, and other assets. So this is kind of a back and forth right now but um each russian officer loss is very difficult to replace and so each time a senior officer dies at the colonel level or above russia loses very extensive experience and russia loses uh its um best experienced uh, soldiers in this war in that sense uh so the strike in the black sea fleet was especially salient simply because well not just simply, but Ukrainians have demonstrated that they can reach deep inside an area that Russia is supposed to protect with air defenses, electronic warfare defenses, radars, and other assets, so that all of Crimea is vulnerable to Ukrainian attack. But it also demonstrated that it can hit Russia where it hurts, and that is to take out its senior officers with a lot of military experience. Any sense of what the you know, Russian public or uh, Russian descent is saying um, to some of these headlines. I mean, I know that it's difficult and that Putin has a, a pretty uh, tight grip on, uh, you know, public perception. But what are you hearing in terms of, you know, those that are critical of Putin in Russia um, from these headlines? 
Well, there aren't that many people who are publicly critical of uh, of the president in Russia right now. There isn't much anti-Putin criticism. There isn't much public dissent in Russia. Uh, certainly not the way it was in er, in in early 2022 and uh, when the mobilization started. But this attack was acknowledged on Telegram channels, and uh, certainly there's a lot of anger and resentment uh, towards Ukrainians for this very successful strike, which is to be expected, obviously. But again, there isn't much dissent, there isn't much criticism, and even if the news is sanitized on state television, Russian people do have access to Telegram, which is rather descriptive and could be quite graphic in um, in a day-to-day operations. But again, there isn't much criticism against uh, the government against the president. Uh, a lot of military bloggers have learned the hard way not to pour their anger on their own military and are now redirecting sort of that sentiment uh, towards the Ukrainians themselves. What do you attribute the successes to? I mean, is this just a sense or is this just the natural progression that um, the Ukrainians are getting better at this? But I mean, both of these events that you described are pretty significant, um, you know, for the reasons that you gave. But I mean, is this a, a result of, you, you know, Western technology being shared? Is it just that they continue to get better? Is it that the Russians get worse? I mean, your, your sense on, you know, the significance of these two, uh, these two victories, if you will. It's all of the above. Obviously, Ukrainians are getting better with every day. They're adjusting their tactics. They can be flexible on the ground, that they know exactly what they need at the tactical and operational levels. And obviously, the Western weapons and systems have been very helpful. They've enabled Ukrainians to do things they haven't been able to do before. Uh, certainly, some of that are Russian errors, both forced and unforced. Uh, but um, I think around six months ago, uh, in our earlier podcasts, I quoted uh, the Russian governor of Crimea saying, Ukrainian drones are the biggest threat to the peninsula. And it is not a threat that could be easily stopped or interdicted, as the Russians are learning on a daily basis with Ukrainian drone attacks against their territory. Uh, certainly, uh, radio electronic uh, intel and radio electronic defenses, electronic warfare, certainly different types of air defense and kinetic systems could be quite helpful in identifying these threats, but not all of them. And uh, a lot of uh, actual drones can slip through. And so Ukrainians are learning every day um, how to uh, basically take advantage of vulnerabilities in Russian defenses in the Crimea. You know, this idea of uh, using uh, drones is something that you've been talking about for a long time, especially on this podcast, right? I mean, you've been talking right. about it in terms of the unique technology that's been used, um, the unique amount of, um, I guess you'd say numbers, right? I mean, it's not just technology, but it's numbers. Um, and then it's just this constant evolution. Um, let, let's kind of switch a little bit to the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Um, I mean, that that again has been another example uh, of where drones played a significant role in achieving a political end. Now that's right. Um, Azerbaijani victory in the war of 2020 was enabled by a modernized military equipped with all manner of UAVs and drones, including kamikaze drones. Back then, um, Azerbaijan demonstrated the um, the evolution, essentially, of um, of drone tactics, uh, a combination of different types of drones at different ranges. Uh, but also that victory was enabled by uh, Armenian forces not really uh, preparing well for this threat and not really considering this threat uh, long term. And so um, what is happening in the Gorno-Karabakh recently 
the possible departure of all um, people from Nagor of all Armenian people uh, from Nagorno-Karabakh region to Armenia and Azerbaijani subsequent takeover of the region wholesale is and is basically a conclusion of a um, of a long running conflict. Uh, but Azerbaijani victory again was enabled by new technologies. So this is a very harsh lesson for the militaries around the world, no matter what their budget is, no matter what their preparation is, that drones, the aerial drones, the uh, kamikaze drones are going to become extremely effective and extremely important in any type of conflict. And any military on any budget can actually equip uh, itself with a range of aerial drones that can prove extremely effective against militaries and systems that are not preparing for this threat or are underestimating this threat altogether. And certainly there were a lot of autopsies of the 2020 war and uh, a lot of conclusions were made that uh, UAV systems and counter UAV systems are absolutely essential in combat. In fact, that was one of the major conclusions reached by the Russian militaries in uh, 2021, uh, that uh, uh, any war will involve a number of loading munitions, long range, short range, mid range, ISR drones for reconnaissance, uh, combat drones of all ranges and sizes. Um, and so uh, once again, this is a very harsh lesson about the evolution of new technology and the importance of acquiring this technology in combat. The, the drones, of course, are not a, um, they're not the only uh, solution in conquering territory and holding territory because the Nagorno-Karabakh wars was all about this very slow grinding advance holding onto the mountains and the hilltops. Uh, but drones have enabled one side to have a better observation and a better analysis of the combat situation and an, enabled it a better ability, a faster ability to strike stationary targets. So uh, this is, again, another lesson in current and future wars that defensive systems or military systems be stationary for long. They must be well protected, well defended. And um, the tactical situation could be quite fluid and can change rapidly with the use and acquisition of different types of UAVs. What's been the biggest, I, I guess, surprise um, for, for you as somebody that tracks this very closely? I mean, whether you look at um, the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict or you look at uh, Ukraine, in terms of looking at the evolution of technology, was there a P, an area in which you were surprised that you saw a um, uh, you know, a bump in technology or a new type of technology used, or is it just this sort of long evolution uh, of numbers um, that that got your attention? Well, this is something that we've been talking on this uh, on this podcast for quite a while, and that's the rapid um, inclusion of commercial technologies uh, at the tactical level in combat, and that is the use of commercial quadcopters, and then um, uh, the uh, evolution of and mass scale use of FPV type drones, which are basically all commercial wholesale by the militaries. This is an unprecedented development in the sense that usually militaries use military grade, military designed, military acquired technologies. They take years to test uh, and evaluate. Uh, they have certain types of countermeasures built into them. Uh, but in the war in Ukraine, as we have seen time and time again, and on a daily basis and practically on an hourly basis, it is commercial technology, commercial technology application that is actually proving quite effective. Uh, over the weekend, New York Times published a very interesting article about uh, Ukrainian uh, tactical use of commercial drones made of plastic and right, foam. Right. 
And they're, they're made completely out of commercial parts. But what is important in that article is that Ukrainian soldiers, Ukrainian drone operators can change their tactics literally on the fly, no pun intended. They can change frequencies at which drones fly. They can change how they're uh, flying uh, and how high above the ground. As soon as they lose their drones to the Russian air defenses or, uh, or counter UAV defenses, they can change and switch those tactics almost immediately. And this type of flexibility is also highly unusual because, again, large militaries operate along certain sets of rules and uh, changing and switching tactical rules like that uh, sometimes re sometimes require different processes than the ones we're seeing in Ukraine. So rapid inclusion and rapid use of commercial technologies and then rapid adaptation of these technologies at the tactical level is defining how the war in Ukraine is fought and how successful Ukrainian or Russian forces can be at a certain part of the front. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an important point. I think about you know how scripted and um, procedural uh, the U.S. use of uh, UAVs is. Um, you, you know, among the major forces, I think it's a little bit different uh, in, with our special operators. But um, you, you know, the, that article pointing out all of the different creativity and all of the changes that you're seeing on, on the battlefield, you, you know, at the corporal level. Um, it is uh, it is really amazing. Um, are you seeing Western uh, militaries pulling these lessons learned? I mean, is there you know a sense that the rest of the world is learning from this, or is it still very much in the the watch and see uh, you know phase of operations? I think the, the the world has been learning from the beginning when the war started, and certainly a lot of this knowledge to operate commercial drones, especially quadcopters, has been around for a while, even before. Russia invaded Ukraine in uh, 2022. Uh, certain non-state actors, uh, drug cartels and criminal organizations were using quadcopters for delivery and, and dropping bombs. Just a few days ago, uh, there were videos on social media about um, FPV drones striking um, militants in Sudan. And it, it looked like the types of weapons and systems which are used widely in Ukraine. Um, certainly the world is watching, certainly the world is learning. And of course, United States Department of Defense and uh, the Army and the Marine Corps and all who have to fight on the ground at the tactical level are uh, are watching this in great detail. Again, the issue are the procedures, right? And the issue is how basically how things are done, how quickly they can change, how quickly new technologies and tactics can be adopted. Ukraine doesn't have the luxury of a lengthy evaluation and testing process. They have to do things right away. And oftentimes, um, solutions found right there on the spot, just like that New York Times article indicates. Um, it, the same is slowly happening on the Russian side as well. Uh, there's a lot of volunteer-based activity. There's a lot of volunteer-based training and uh, assembly and delivery of FPV-type drones. They're also changing their tactics based on what Ukrainians are doing. And of course, the watching all major militaries are watching uh, China is watching, and obviously the United States Department of Defense is also keeping a close eye on all of these technological developments, tactics, and evolutions. Well, Sam, thank you very much. We'll have to leave it there. I know this is a conversation that you and Vago uh, have been having for you know years now, but I appreciate you indulging me on kind of covering some of the more basic stuff. I, I really think that, as you mentioned, that this uh, 
the speed of learning uh, that we're seeing on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine, but also in other places is uh, is fascinating for those that watch this closely, both from a, a technological standpoint and, and from a, a tactic standpoint. So thanks for keeping our audience up to date uh, week in and week out and uh, look forward to having you back on next week when Vago's in the seat. Thanks so much. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space sponsored our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show held a few weeks ago at National Harbor. All right, joining us now is our good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back. Good to see you, Chris. So Byron, um, you put out a, a weekly note every Sunday evening. Let's start our discussion with where you began uh, your note uh, last night. Uh, you talked about US defense stocks um, and their view of uh, you know the budget and uh, the possible shutdown. Um, what what's your thoughts on where uh, where the stocks are and you know what what the I, I guess the feeling is among um, defense industry leaders as we head into what could be a up and down week leading to the beginning of the fiscal year. Yep, absolutely, Chris. So it's just interesting as this is really just looking at how the larger U.S. defense stocks traded over the past five days, you know, and clearly <clears throat> there's been increased risks, I suppose, that we are going to have a federal shutdown, an appropriations lapse that could last probably more than a couple of days, but we can get to that in a second. But, you know, it's always hard to really determine what exactly is moving uh, the broad stock market and then individual names. But you know, last week, the S&P 500 was down around 3%. Um, a lot of the larger U.S. defense stocks were down less than that, maybe 1% to 2%. I think L3 Harris was actually flat during the week. And then the services companies, you know, which might have a little uh, more um, exposure to a shutdown just because right. they tend to work on shorter cycle um, appropriations out of the operations and maintenance budget, um, they too were mixed. Uh, I think Booz Allen was down four percent, um, but you know the others, uh, CACI, Lidos were down in line with the market, maybe even a little bit less. So there, there really wasn't any alarm uh, that you could detect in the way the defense stocks <clears throat> were acting last week about the shutdown. And I suppose that's appropriate for now. Um, there is, I think, as as you know, Michael Hershen discussed on your show. On Friday, you know, still a potential outcome where, you know, the Congress seems to walk right up to the edge um, and and threatens to leap and then magically pulls some solution out of its hat. Um, I think by, you know, we're going to know whether this is possible by Wednesday or Thursday this week. You know, that's kind of the way the debt ceiling deal played out. So I'm <clears throat> having said that, you know, I think the most personally, I think the most likely outcome is we do get a federal shutdown um, that then is going to push us probably beyond um, October 13th, which is an interesting <clears throat> kind of date that I've circled right. on my calendar because that's when uh, federal employees and, and people serving in the military are paid. Um, so that's going to be a pretty, pretty important date to, um, you know, get Congress to act. 
at least to get continuing uh, resolution done so there are appropriations to pay people. So let, let's go back to, um, you know, you talked about this week. W what would be indicators leading up to, I mean, obviously, if we don't have a budget, we're headed towards a, a shutdown, yeah. but what would be some other indicators that would lead you to determine, you know, how long or how severe the, the shutdown could be. You mentioned in your note, the pay military act, yeah. um, which I think we did, we've done before, um, you know, which is a way of sort of inoculating the Congress from fallback or fallout from uh, not paying folks in the military. What, what other things should we keep our eye on? Well, yeah, that, that, that act um, occurred in 2013 when there was a six, 16-day federal shutdown. Um, Congress pulled that together, I think, um, from around September 27th or 28th through, it was enacted literally on September 30th. So, you know, if you were serving, you, you got paid. Um, it took a couple of days for the department to figure that out. Right. Um, there, there was uh, probably a four-day period where uh, civilians were furloughed at DOD. But then once um, Bob Hale, the then Comptroller of the Department of Defense, kind of determined with counsel at DOD that they could, in fact, um, bring people back to work, even though they didn't have an appropriations number, um, the, you know, the, the impact on the Department of Defense was actually fairly limited. And then in turn on contractors as well, because you didn't have, you know, kind of the normal day-to-day -day business of um of working with the Department of Defense could proceed. Um I, I think Chris, you know, that's one thing to watch this week. <clears throat> that could come together fairly quickly. I think we're going to know by Tuesday or Wednesday if you actually start seeing media reports um, or or you know people in Congress talking about something like that. Um frankly, you know, that to your point, you know, it, it would kind of inoculate the Department of Defense, it still would affect, obviously, other federal agencies if there was a funding, uh, an appropriations lapse. But um, that that might argue for maybe a potentially longer um, federal shutdown, but one that really wouldn't have much of a direct bearing on defense. You know, what I'm really going to be watching for, obviously, is kind of these two parallel paths. One is what the Senate might be able to do. Um, you know, there's this notion of uh, since that, you know, budget <clears throat> legislation is has to start in the House of Representatives, um, the Senate usually can't take the lead on that, although they can in this instance. It's a fairly arcane process where they take the FAA reauthorization bill, strip the contents out of that, and then insert a continuing resolution that legislation had been passed by the House, and then the Senate could send that back over to the House with the CR and, and see if there's a straight up and down vote on that. Um, the other thing, of course, is somehow um, Speaker McCarthy is able to round up <clears throat> the elements of the Freedom Caucus and agree to pass a CR, although, you know, everything in the last 24 to 72 hours looks that, that looks almost impossible at this point in time. And I would say, you know, if the House were able to, if, if McCarthy could bring the um, the Senate pass CR to a floor vote, he'd have to have Democrats uh, to, right. yeah. to support that. And it would, it would probably cost him his speakership, which, which then opens up a whole nother 
uh, can of worms. Um, you know, okay, so you get a CR for 45 or 60 days, whatever, but but really, what does that say about the ultimate outcome of the FY24 appropriations bills? And if you kind of have a leaderless or rudderless house, that could also be very difficult. So as much as we kind of focus on the day-to-day -day here, you know, you got to keep your eye on the ball. The longer ball is what happens to FY24 appropriations. That seems to be <clears throat> that seems to be the biggest difference, I think, this time over years past where we've walked right up to the edge, right? I mean, this idea that you could pass a CR but lose the speaker, and you know, that would cause all sorts of craziness heading into the end of the calendar year and into an election year. I mean, that you know, from your perspective, is that really the biggest difference over years? past or is yeah. it the, the fractured nature the larger fractured nature of the republican caucus um both i mean you know there's <laughs> this famous saying about you know on wall street the four most dangerous words are it's different this time right <laughs> um and but i do think it is different this time and again it's it's just the very narrow <clears throat> majority that the republicans have in the house um, the the Freedom Caucus, uh, you know, and and really what are probably four to ten members of that Freedom Caucus that that really are able to, um, uh, to, to drag things out or potentially really upset the whole, <laughs> certainly the speakership. I mean, I think the interesting thing is, you know, if you do have a motion to vacate, um, that was one of the the tools that uh, McCarthy handed to. Some of the um, hard right members of the Freedom Caucus uh, that that got him the speakership, but um, that that is is a different element, and we didn't see that there was a, a higher, a larger number of <clears throat> GOP members in the House uh, in the twenty twenty in the twenty thirteen um, shutdown battle. So uh, you know you could lose support but still get legislation passed. Um, and this, you know, with these much thinner margins makes it more difficult. As I said, if, if McCarthy wants to get something done here, he's probably going to have to reach out to Democrats and doing that could really that could end his speakership. Um, you had an interesting list of things at the bottom of your note. Uh, you yeah. termed them some early yeah. Christmas wish list requests. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you're like my house, you're already you're looking past Halloween and looking to Christmas. Um, what what about for our podcast listeners? What what should they put on their uh, their budget Christmas wish list uh, as well, you I, outlined? Yeah, I think I also pointed out, Chris, that um, I, I don't believe in Santa Claus. There yeah. is Santa <laughs> Claus, but um, right. you know, you can make these lists and who knows, maybe, maybe I'll be proven wrong. But really it was just, you know, kind of sitting back and thinking about what what we as a nation have gone through in 2023. Uh, on what really are kind of these artificial um, crises that have been caused by how, uh, you know, Congress has interpreted legislation, how prior administrations have interpreted legislation. And, you know, I suppose the first thing, uh, you know, people have talked about this before, but get rid of the debt ceiling. Um, you know, the debt uh, that is incurred by the, by the U.S. federal government is really result largely of legislation that was passed by Congress, you know, to have that debt ceiling out there and the, and the you know, the, the controversy, the risk that somehow the U.S. is going to default, it, it, don't pass laws, legislation that, that <clears throat> give rise to that debt to start with. That would be one thing I would wish for. 
Um, the second thing, and I think this is pretty interesting, you know, these federal shutdowns, um, they really only started to have teeth in, in, in 1980, when then President Carter, <clears throat> after having two of these, I guess, in the third shutdown, um, had his attorney general <clears throat> look at uh, prior legislation that would have been teeth, put teeth into, into kind of deterring Congress from uh, from uh, not passing appropriations bills. And it, it turned out his then attorney general took a very strict interpretation of anti-deficiency legislation that had been passed. I want to say it may have gone back to the 1870s. And the point to this was you actually had federal uh, appropriations lapse, but the federal government just continued to work. I mean, they didn't send people home. They, they, in effect, took out credit. They didn't go to the bank and borrow money. But, um, you know, so this disruption of to people's everyday lives, to the risk that, you know, wow, what am I going to do with my, my rent or my house payment or my car payment, you know, if, if, uh, if I'm not paid on time, um, you know, that would be something else that I would, I would hope uh, Congress might uh, step back and remove. Again, we wouldn't have the drama that we're seeing this week if we didn't worry about people getting paid next week and the week after. Um, the other point was, you know, we've seen this with Senator Tuberville's holds on uh, nominations and promotions for <clears throat> admirals and generals. Um, you know, the Senate moved a couple of those last week, at least some of the most senior positions. But, um, you know, the power of individual um, senators, and now we're seeing in the House of Individual Representatives, to really block um, broader legislation, broader action. You know, something has to be done to temper that down. And the last one, Chris, was just this notion of um, dividing discretionary spending between defense and non-defense or security and non-security. I mean, in an era of great power competition, you know, we really are, are talking about whole of government efforts. So to, to lump, um, you know, the State Department, um, Department of Homeland Security, you know, even infrastructure spending, some of the money in the CHIPS Act is non-defense or non-security. Um, really doesn't fit the template of what the country needs to do in great power competition. You know, education plays a pretty significant role in that. And even at a more foundational level, I'd say having healthy people who are able to serve would be another element of this. So um, that's a distinction, you know, probably the fourth element of my Christmas wish list would be get rid of those um, categorizations or, or find another categorization um, that might, you know, lump military spending with other elements that actually uh, build <clears throat> strength and resilience in, in the country, um, you know, for people to prosper and for, for people to have secure uh, lives as well, too. And, and those distinctions right now, you know, I, I think miss, miss what the country needs to do um, in, in the coming months and years. So in the couple minutes that we have left, uh, let, let's look ahead. What are you tracking for this week in addition to all of the, the budget shenanigans that are likely to go on? Yeah, uh, I, I suppose there are a couple of things, you know, from a defense standpoint, um, uh, build a plant. Uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment is going to be speaking at CSIS on Tuesday. Now, he's made a couple of appearances recently at an NDIA conference and then um, at the Center for New American Security. So I don't know if he's going to have, you know, a whole new um, 
sheet of music to sing from here, but I do think, you know, maybe there's some incremental discussion about certainly the shutdown impact. I, I think he's probably going to be the most senior DOD leadership kind of on the public uh, circuit this week. So what he says about the shutdown, the impacts um, will be interesting. He may also have more to say about the replicator program, which um, the Deputy Sec Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks, rolled out in August. Um, there is a Brookings Institute event on geopolitics, also that same day, earlier that same day. Um, and then later in the week, there's a Wharton Ventures, Aerospace Ventures event that I'll actually be attending um, on the 28th and 29th in California. Uh, DIU is going to be there. So it'd be kind of interesting to see, you know, what's really going on with new defense technology and kind of this outreach to bring more uh, innovative companies. Not, not that the big companies aren't innovative, but but the smaller um, defense tech people into the defense universe. Well, Byron, busy week indeed. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. We look forward to having you back next Monday with Vago. He'll be back uh, in the seat. But uh, thanks again. Thanks, Chris.